0: This
1: week, we're so excited to be reintroducing Samara Almonte for the second of two guest episodes. She's one of Shadow's fabulous editorial team and the founder of Races Verdes, a platform dedicated to validating, archiving and sharing the experiences of racialized peoples reconnecting with their green roots. It continues on from last week where Samara is chatting with brilliant guests and legendary native storytellers about their craft, their histories and the importance of their storytelling work. Enjoy.
0: Hello, my name is Samara Almonte and I am part of the Michoacan diaspora raised between the lakes and Tierra Caliente regions of Michoacan, and occupied Coast Salish territory or the Pacific Northwest. I identify as a Purapecha descendant reconnecting with my ancestors. My reconnection journey has really has greatly influenced my work as a storyteller, community planner, and climate justice advocate. I acknowledge that I am recording an occupied Snohomish territory, part of the Coast Salish people's territory. And I'm really excited today for another episode uh, in collaboration with Shadow's uh, new podcast. And today we have Rachel Edwardson. They are an Inupiaq, Norwegian, Sami, social justice filmmaker, and an educator from Utkabik, Barrow, Alaska. She's a producer and impact producer on the film In My Blood, It Runs, directed in collaboration by Maya Newell and produced with Sophie Hyde and Larissa Garand. In 2001, Rachel produced and directed a 13-part miniseries for a television entitled Home Rule, a discussion of current political and social issues in Alaska. Following the completion of Home Rule, Rachel's company entered into a partnership with Jana Hart- Harsherik and the NSB SDAEP to create the Indigenous RIN directed and produced History of the Inupia Documentary Series. The series, still in production, spans the history of the Inupiaq people from pre-contact with Westerners to present. Presently, three films of the series have been completed, The Duck Inn and Nipa Ilit (laughs) Kusipa, The Voice of Our Spirit, and Project Chariot. Rachel wrote an Inupiaq fantasy trilogy and received the Sundance Ford Fellowship for Nanum Kikum, The Polar Bear's Tooth, in 2009. Alongside filmmaking, Rachel has been our nerd to work in education reform with communities across Alaska and Australia. She works closely with her husband and human rights lawyer, filmmaker, and educator, David S. Badi, Badi v Liu, across Australia and Alaska. Together, Rachel and David have three beautiful children. Hi, Rachel.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for that long introduction. I should have sent <laughs> a, a little bio, a short one. Um, no, that's
0: important. You've done amazing work to highlight it
2: thank you um i'll just start off and say uh hello to your listeners um uvlalor tak uvonga rachel renay nutak ayafok nanginak edwardson utkarvik um aparaj george edwardson zli akara Debbie edwardson anara elizabeth mao the bedo ah zli di edwardson adaraka good morning my name is rachel Renee nutak ayafok nanginak edwardson i am from utkarvik alaska I'd like to recognize this morning I'm calling in from the traditional lands of the Ninilchuk tribe, um, the sovereign country, their unceded territory, and recognize the strength and resilience of their elders, past and present, and the elders that are emerging um, for the future now. This country is a beautiful country. It's such amazing landscape. While I'm talking to you, I'm looking at over the Homer Spit, which is a very famous fishing spot, and these huge ancient mountains, and behind them are these glaciers just spring up across this water. And it's such powerful country to be on other people's other people's lands and i'm very honored to to be welcome here so yeah and, and thank you for having me today it's it's an honor to be on this podcast you guys do great work
0: thank you yeah that sounds beautiful and again thank you for recognizing that indigenous land i know what it's like to yeah just be able to travel somewhere else and just know that you know being a visitor there it's just so important to acknowledge that and acknowledge whose land we're on and whose ancestors we're meeting along the way so I'm glad you are able to have a beautiful landscape while we talk today. Yeah, absolutely.
2: It's my my privilege.
0: So just to get started and, and get to know you a little bit more, I wanted to ask, you know, how did you become interested in storytelling or how did you find your calling as a visual media storyteller?
2: That's a very good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a, t- a short answer, but I'll try to shorten it. So my... My mother is a writer and my father is a storyteller. They also do many other things. Um, My father is also a geologist and uh, my mother also worked in education. But I I grew up around stories. You know, my Mm -hmm. mother... She discovered that there were no books in the schools for little Anubach children. She started writing them. And so she used to she used to search everywhere to populate our 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 bookshelves and our stories and our landscapes with with Inubach or native content or at least diverse content where she couldn't find that. And my father told us stories every night at bedtime to put us to sleep. And he traveled around the world for his work, but on the side would sit with all the old people of various countries he was on and collect stories and then relate them to Anubach story. So he's sort of a, he's sort of like an oral historian collector of stories. And that was the, that was the landscape in which I was born. And then my family, my, including my father and my mother and all of my aunties and uncles and grandparents are all resistance fighters, essentially for our Nubak community. They, they protected our land and they protected our people and, and they built everything that we have today. And so as I was becoming aware as a teenager there's a word in Anuvak called "kari," which means to become aware of your surroundings, and and generally your first kari when you're like three. But as that mm-hmm. second sort of stage was happening, you know, when you become aware of the rest of the world and and the landscape that your your family sits in and your community sits in, that was the time where I was I was hearing the stories and watching my aunts and uncles and my grandparents and my oh. parents do these amazing things in our community and and fight for these amazing things, and so that sort of Birthed me into the awareness of the power of story and the power of history as an Inubach person, the importance of knowing your knowing who you are through the landscape lens of what stories provide and how that informs your identity and the way that you construct your world and the way that you understand your experience and the way that you you knit together the history of who your people are, which is really where your spiritual identity sits in that country and with those with those ancestors. And I was really lucky to have that, you know, despite all the trauma of colonization and all the chaos that colonization creates, which I also had in my life, I also had this this beautiful gem of that awareness, which was a gift from from the people who raised me and the, the people I come from. And then in high school, for this very short period of time in this tiny little village high school I went to, we had a television studio. And so mm. I picked up a camera and I, it was this kind of, you know, explosion of realization of how, what, what I could do with this technology if we put the power into the control of the people of whose stories had been marginalized from screen. So at the same time, when I was was raised with all this powerful history and this powerful awareness of the story, I also became aware of where it was missing in our community, right? And in our education system and in our general knowledge and who else had not had the privilege of knowing those stories of my peers, even. And then somebody put a camera in my hand and I realized how powerful the medium is to be able to, to tell our own stories and what it can do on a, on a community wide level when we return the control of the story of who we are as a people. And I mean, you know, expansively, not just our history, but also our fantasies, also our children's stories, also our narratives, our dramas, our comedies. You know, when we, we turn the control of that back into the hands of our community, film for me became this sort of lightning rod of revitalizing that. And and that's how I got into it. And then went away wow. to came back and have been lucky enough to work all over the world with communities and mostly my own but also with other native other first nations communities all over the world
0: yeah i know that sounds amazing and i definitely relate with what you were saying about like you just feel really lucky that there was those oral stories to keep you grounded and and create that framework for you at home because i you know like i shared at the beginning i feel similarly being um not living in my Indigenous territory, but also having those stories. And I feel really mm-hmm. lucky that, you know, the U.S. is definitely, for me, one of those places I see where it will just suck out, like, any cultural knowledge that people have and will just, you know, really force a a sense of assimilation. And so for for me, it feels really lucky that my family kind of pushed back in that assimilation by keeping our stories and by still, you know, finding ways to incorporate them in our day-to-day and so I feel really connected with those stories now as an adult, and I think a lot of people that I've met here in the diaspora have a hard time with that. So I can, I'm i sure that that's been helpful for you as well in your journey with your identity. And I have to ask you now, since you, you mentioned having your kids, do you, are you able to pass down some of that storytelling with them the way your father did?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I used to have, you know, I've always kind of made films and told stories, but I, I used to have this, um, anxiety about writing, right. When you sit down to write a script or whatnot, when I was younger, when I was in my twenties, mm-hmm. so I had that anxiety and, um, I was, I had such, I felt such pressure on <laughs> telling good stories. I think as any young creative world yeah. creative does, I still probably feel that. Pressure. But when I had my first child, um, her, her name is Klofsook, and she's 13 now. And I was trying to learn how to put babies to bed, especially babies. With- <laughs> Go to bed and never ever wanted to sleep, and I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. I started telling her stories, just just um, almost organically, without even connecting it to to my parents or to my father. I would lay her in bed at night, and I would I wanted the lights off so she would go to sleep, and I would just start making up these stories. And I discovered somehow, sort of almost magically, it was like a switch had been flipped on, where I I could weave these stories on the spot with. Plots and characters, and bring in the themes of Inubak um, identity, or other. You know, uh, she's also uh, Sri Lankan Tamil on her father's side, so I've been learning mm-hmm. that history. But I could just weave stories together as needed um, to put her to sleep. And I thought, How, what an interesting. You know, it, it it sparked my like. I've always been fascinated with the difference between oral history and and written history mm-hmm. in terms of storytelling. And the, the sort of different energy that it creates, the different the different way that it constructs um, relationships and community and knowledge, and the way that that's passed on. And it wasn't until I started actually telling stories to my children that my understanding of those things sort of sort of skyrocketed. And I really identify with what you said about you know li- living in in, in um, colonized countries, and it's so true, and it's so. In, in some ways, even if, you know, some people will say it's unintentional, but it's so insidious, right? The nature mm-hmm. of deleting a people's history through deleting their stories. Yes. You know, and I, I often look at, you know, you can, I, I look at that as a storytelling. So when he's worked in this space for my whole life and I, I can feel it on a visceral level, I feel the pain of having those, having, having the attempt to, to erase that, narrative and erase that history of people. I can feel the pain of it. But as somebody who's worked in the space as well, I also know the power of it, right? And so it's all you need. Like when we did the duck in the first film we did, it was amazing to watch what that film did on on, just on my own community which was who it was made for and then we were lucky enough to screen it sort of all over the world and incidentally it was a language stock that was translated into Spanish but we had it kind of screened all over and there was uptake from it which was amazing but what was more phenomenal was the effect it had for our community. And so it's quite powerful to maintain those stories. It's quite powerful to retell them on so many fronts. You, it's almost unquantifiable for me when you look Definitely. at it on the broad lens.
0: Right. And because we know that storytelling like transcends, right. It's, it, it it's, it's outside of a linear model because you're, bringing in knowledge from the past, but into the present, but also like, you know, how you were saying, talking with your children, like we're also putting those seeds in for the future. So it's such a beautiful, it's a, such a way for all of that to exist in one place, which I think is really amazing.
2: And it's it's also the thing, there's, there's an organic nature to um, storytelling, oral storytelling, that is almost impossible to capture in any other form, yeah. but it's the thing that's always my sort of, you know, the kind of ever elusive, I don't mm-hmm. know in front of me, whatever the metaphor is. Obviously, haven't had enough coffee today, but it's the, <laughs> the ever elusive thing in my filmmaking because in, orga- in oral storytelling, your and in Inupiaq storytelling, you construct relationships, right? And it holds mm-hmm. together community. And so, the storyteller will respond with the story to the individual or the kids or the people in front of them, depending on where they're at in their lives, what's going on in the world, and they will highlight different things in that story. Mm-hmm to make it land differently and stronger and more, it's more almost more of an individualized approach, but in that it makes it the story, both a healing and an educational and an entertaining, you know, it it kind of hits all this. And there's something really beautiful about that aspect Mm -hmm. that I'm always trying to kind of figure out how to translate into film.
0: Right. And I think like what you were saying too, when you were talking about your mother, not having like all these different like written resources, books, right, educational materials to be able to uh, share with you all as children. I think that's when like the, the power of having it in a book or in a film really comes into play. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more as we get more into your specific filmmaking, that having that visual like helps as well with just the fact of like, I guess you call it representation or just being able to see yourself on camera, right. Or on a book, it really does change. I'm sure down to like the spiritual aspect of knowing that you're seen and exist in this world uh, that maybe oral st- storytelling can't always provide um yeah. i feel like one of the the themes that you know we've kind of been dancing around talking about these different components of storytelling is Culture preservation, and I think that is such a part part of your process. And so, I'm just curious, why do you think this is such a focus compared to maybe like non-indigenous filmmakers that don't have to think about the culture preservation into their work? That's a great question. Thank you for that. That's a fantastic question. I
2: have an issue with the word preservation. Mm-hmm. Um, not seriously, it does feel a little
0: just- like more westernized concept. I agree. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Not, I mean, I'm not. I don't mean
2: to. With your question, I, I love. No, no, that. No. I, Even
0: I, with the know, land, you know, how people will say land yeah. conservation or preservation. It also makes me kind of irky. <laughs>
2: yeah, but it's it's nice to say it because then we can open it up as a conversation for you know the, the all of us, right? And kind of remember the nature of these words. I think it is a culture. When I first started making films, when I was you know whatever I was 20, uh, that was my focus. Was to I had to focus. I really wanted to make narratives. I was writing my own uh, my own. Inupar fantasies, really, and Ubach stories, just general narrative stories on screen. But I also wanted to use oh. the camera for exactly that, for cultural preservation, because there we were losing elders we were always losing elders and with those elders was going a lot of the knowledge that we had not actually recorded anywhere and because of the simulation systems that we were that we're still subjected to we were we couldn't access them the young people couldn't access that knowledge because it was only contained in the elders and you we stick our young people into school systems where they where they don't have access to those elders if it's a traditional Western school system, you know, for eight hours a day, five days a week, and mm-hmm. how however many weeks a year it is, I can't remember at this moment, but it's, you know, significant. And so I was really focused on that, on preserving that. And as I grew as a practitioner and as an artist, and as I got older, I realized that, that the the strongest form of preservation is revitalization where you're actually living those things. Right. And it's very, very useful. As a historical documentary for a large part of my career, I have no problem with preservation because so much of what I was able to pull out into that history series came from what people had recorded before when those elders were gone. You know, I was using the stories and voices of people who were no longer with us because somebody had said, we need to preserve your knowledge, and so I don't necessarily have an issue with that idea. But what I hope to do is to encourage, and and by you know my own example of make making space for these things in my life, of revitalizing um, and strengthening these ways of being and doing and relating and and telling stories and behaving in the world that are uniquely Inupiaq or unique to any of our communities that you actually, in my experience, you actually have to intentionally open up space in your life to do that. So that's the one part of the answer. And then the second part is the reason that is so important and they're related, these two answers for me. The reason it's so important is that as an Inupiaq filmmaker and storyteller and educator and all the other things that I've found myself doing in my life, we live in a context where it's a tsunami of onslaught, of colonial uh, ways of being, colonial perspectives, colonial ideas. And this is, and we've been living with that for multiple generations now. And so the internalization where we adopt those ideas into ourselves and into our own communities and into our beings, and then we start defending these colonial ideas, which are damaging to us as Native people, um, the internalization of that is 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 very profound. It's very serious mm-hmm. and it's very intense. And so, in order to heal from it, in order to return ourselves to strength based ways of being and relating, we have to intentionally think about it. And that starts with mm-hmm. going, what is it? What what is the context I'm in? What does it actually look like? And what is it that I'm missing? And where is that right? And then, what does that look like in the modern world? Right? Because a mm-hmm. lot of times when we have these conversations, we run into this dichotomy of, oh, well, you don't want to go back to just hunting with bows and arrows, do you? <laughs> or just riding horses or whatever country you're on, right? For us, it's just yeah. hunting um, harpoons and umaks, which incidentally we still use. Um, <laughs> but you don't want to just do that. You don't want to not have running water. And I'm like, we don't yeah. have to actually, it, it doesn't need to be an either or conversation. Yeah. We actually construct a holistic way of being that, that is grounded on our ancestral principles and ways and epistemologies, you know, mm-hmm. our, our ways of being and use tools of the modern world. We just have to be aware that those tools often come with certain ideas and opinions and, and perspectives and rules that are not necessarily conducive to being in a Nubak person. So we have to choose how we incorporate them and mm-hmm. we we incorporate. And that's that's all that I'm saying. And I think that that's part of the reason as a filmmaker, the way that lands in my filmmaking practice is the focus is on preserving that to revitalize it, right? And so mm-hmm. if I want to revitalize Inupraq ways of being through these stories, the way that I make the stories needs to also also do that. And that's what the bulk of my career has been about, is looking at the how as well as the what, which is Mm -hmm. when writing out these resources and writing a book on this practice. But Mm -hmm. that's the best way for me to describe it. That's why I think it's important for us to be aware of cultural preservation and cultural revitalization in our Mm -hmm. context, because if we don't become conscious of it, we, we will accidentally perpetuate the very ideas that we're trying to dismantle.
0: No, definitely. And when you were talking um, towards your second part of the answer, it made me think of the work of someone here locally, uh, Matika Wilbur. I'm not sure if you've heard of her work, but she, um, you know, traveled across uh, North America to document um, with photography, different like indigenous communities. um, I think like over 500 different tribes that she went to. And uh, I remember I saw her speak about her book that just recently came out with all those photos and, she was talking about how she often had this dream, you know, that she would walk down the streets of Seattle and just hear the Indigenous language being spoken everywhere, Lushootse, and just see it everywhere. And I think that's something that always stuck with me, because it's kind of like this process that you were talking about, like, how do we Indigenize and revitalize that knowledge, like everywhere. And I feel like I've seen glimpses of it. Like I've, because I'm living so close to the Canadian border, I've been able to go up to you know vancouver uh vancouver bc and have noticed that in there they do kind of try to put more in your face like the indigenous names of different places i ski as well and we went up to whistler with my partner and again it was just kind of interesting compared to like the resort that we go here where they had the indigenous names in their uh language i guess how you would write it in um you know the alphabet that we use they had it um everywhere from like the lift chairs to like the different trails uh that you were going down in and i feel like even just that small act which is really the bare minimum right of renaming places was so powerful to see and it's going to spark a conversation because you can't avoid it right because you're seeing it so i feel like if we even think about a grander scale of like the storytelling that you're talking about with like films and uh writing and the curriculum and it's just a way to like yeah, for people to not avoid that Indigenous people are still here and will be here in the future and and whose land are we on? And so I think that's really powerful of re-indigenizing spaces. And outside of my creative work, I come traditionally from an urban planning background. And I think that's something that I thought a lot about throughout my education and still till this day is like, how do we re-indigenize spaces, like physical spaces, right? Um, Because especially in urban settings like Seattle um, or, yeah, any other kind of major city, like, it can be hard sometimes to re-indigenize because, you know, like you were saying, like they don't want to see indigenous people in a more urbanized or, I guess, modern sense. But I always think about like, if colonization hadn't started happening to people, like in terms of like, you know, we having settlers come in and destroy all our knowledge and literal land and resources, I'm like, where would we be today? Like, we already have so much knowledge about the world, about medicine, about animals that I'm like, we would have already just, invented a whole new like probably form of technology and lifestyle because indigenous people have just been that just constantly like innovative and so in tune with the world so sometimes it both makes me a little sad but also inspired to just dream of a more indigenized world
2: yeah that's right and i i think that that's a really key point that you bring up for me in my work and in you know my life is and i think what it is i'll, I'll place it in a, in a new park lens what I hope to see and what I try and with my children and with our community is the awareness, because it, it's hard not to swallow that pill. I'm I'm very lucky in that when I grew up in Utkelvik, you know, we didn't have a television until I was like 13. I mm-hmm. didn't have running water or flush toilets. Like a very, very different world that I grew up in. And mm-hmm. our world changed really fast, right? Really I mean it had changed really fast and between my father and my generation, my grandmother was born in a sod house, you know, like Mm -hmm. very fast change for our people. And the changes come with these really powerfully devastating messages that we've internalized as a people unintentionally, of course, but nevertheless the same it's, these are messages internalizing. And we, we swallow those pills. And what I hope to see is exactly that point that you brought up, which is, Yes, we can focus our energy on the rest of the world and how they see us. And to some extent, we need to always maintain some focus on that to protect what ground we're standing on in our own community. But also, we have to remember to focus that lens internally and make sure that the things that we're bringing inside our own bodies, inside our community, onto our own country, inside our own stories, are things that are healthy, strength-based, Inupiaq ways of being that strengthened that idea. And so, you know, that thing around how you live and what tools you have and whether or not you're, you know, what, what, whether or not your own sense of self um, that you internalize shame of being a non-white person or being a BIPOC or Native person from anywhere, that is one of the things in storytelling that I find to be most effective at destroying almost instantly, like that mm-hmm. is one of the powers of story. And the, you're exactly right in what you say that the thing about filmmaking is that you can't quite capture the organic nature of it, but what you can do almost instantly by putting elders up on par on an equal level with say a historian from Harvard mm-hmm. is to destroy that shame and you you simultaneously destroy the shame, give validity to the story, and revitalize and strengthen a stronger sense of of identity in the people yeah. watching for a group of people across a mass, right? Because one film can reach across lots of spaces. And so that, that I think, I'm sort of mumbling through this because <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Distraction no. on philosophical level here, but I, I, I just feel that it's so important for us to remember that alongside any of the trauma, there's always strength, right. Even yeah. inside ourselves. And so, I just feel that if we don 't constantly ground ourselves in what it is the strength in our spirits, we can 't heal from the trauma and storytelling and filmmaking and all of these efforts that we put in everywhere, revitalization of any kind, whether you 're not in the health field of education or economics or politics all of uh, we 're all trying to do this, that same thing it 's that same core right, and if we we ground ourselves in those the lessons of our ancestors in the modern context, we get
0: there, right? And we remember Mm -hmm. that. Yes. No, thank you so much for sharing that. And I feel like we've, you know, we've talked quite a bit about like what filmmaking and from an Indigenous perspective can do for art personal identity and strengthening that identity. But what role do you think filmmaking has in Indigenous peoples' fight for self-determination or environmental justice, for example?
2: Well, it's interesting. I think there's two roles. I mean, one of the reasons I I started working on that history series with uh, another, one of my mentors, um, her mm-hmm. name is Anna Acharok and we worked for 20 years on it. And she was in the middle of um, reforming our education system. And mm-hmm. Know, linking, bringing in Inuit ways of of educating into our system and creating a broader than just Inuit content, but really trying to create an Inuit educational structure that sat in our modern world and married married the two, so our kids have. The ability to live in in the you know global context we exist in today, and it, I started working with her and making content for that curriculum, and that's how the history series came along. And a lot of people had wanted to do that history series and have been working on it for a number of years in in book form, and we decided to start making it in film. And when we chose, we didn't have any money, right? It was the school district, and I was a young filmmaker who didn't have any profile whatsoever, <laughs> and so we had no money to make it. So I, I mean, I'm sure our most no, and I think that's <laughs> a big part of that's
0: kind of started to change a little bit now where I've seen more grants and opportunities for indigenous filmmakers and storytellers. But I'm sure when you first started, it was really Mm. hard to find funding. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, completely. No, there was, there was just nothing. And there was not, and not only was there nothing, there was also this idea of the film industry. When I first started making films and I said, hey, I'm going to make films that allow these people, allow my mm-hmm. own people to tell their side of the story. And they are for this purpose. I'm making films for this purpose. And the film industry turned around and said to me, well, then you don't get to call yourself a filmmaker. That's not, mm. what, that's not art that's not filmmaking right oh so We don't get to be a filmmaker and so I, I was sort of this you know little lone person all by myself at the top of the world making <laughs> most of my community but the the benefit was is and again this is this this idea around strength this perspective i had those elders behind me so it didn't matter mm-hmm. i didn't care i was like well i've got these right. elders these are the most important people in my life right, These like, are
0: who i'm, I'm accountable to, to
2: these are who I'm accountable to, right? That's right. This is, I, I do, they have asked me to do this, so I am doing this, you know? And so that was, um, that was how I started. But the first film we decided to make, um, despite the fact that we had no money is a, a film called The Duckin. And it's, it's one of the early social political protests that we had as a people to protect our hunting rights, because at the time mm-hmm. in the 1960s, the federal government, the state of Alaska had just become a state. Um, and the United States federal government was gung ho on trying to get control of of native hunting, which, of course, you know, from a very right. simplified perspective, and a con- conservationist, a simplified conservationist or animal rights perspective is like, oh, well, well, of course, we've got to have control of that to protect the animals. But once you dig a bit deeper into that, it's absolutely not because of getting control of the animals; it's right. getting control of the land, right? If right. you've got a people, as my father would always say, if you if you can still feed yourself and you're not You still are able to make a living off of your own country, then that protection, that aspect of your sovereignty is protected, right? You are are required, you are not completely dependent on a cash based economy to feed your children.
0: Right. And that's totally why they like target any kind of like self determined sovereign food sovereignty movement, is what I wanted to say. Absolutely. Because yeah, then people have the means to be self determined, which, yeah, always a target. It seems so innocent, right? Like, oh, we're starting our own urban garden or we're starting our own like in this case like being able to hunt and fish but it will always be such a bigger project for them because they know i mean that's how they attacked a lot of indigenous people at the first right it was like getting rid of all their uh, sustenance or food
2: yeah absolutely i mean killing off all the buffalo in the lower 48 oh and my in gosh. those days it was intentional nowadays it's it doesn't have the you know surface level intentionality you have to dig deeper and and interrogate the ideas and perspectives on that side, right? Because mm-hmm. people go, oh, it's always a they and us uh, and then. And I I'm, I'm always say that. And what I, I always want to explain myself and say, it's really the ideas that we're talking about, right? And if we can't all interrogate the ideas and perspectives and make sure that they're conducive to healthy, strength-based societies, then we're going to stumble up and have problems. And one of these ideas was control of native hunting rights, right? And so, you know, they at that time, my community, our communities in the North were completely dependent on subsistence hunting, right? And they, mm-hmm. the federal government decided to come up against the advice of their colleagues in the state. They said, don't, I wouldn't do this. If I were you, this is a bad idea. They came up to Utkalvik, which was known as Barrow then, and arrested two duck hunters because they had signed a treaty, despite the fact that they knew when the ducks were present in Alaska, that banned duck hunting the only time the ducks are present on the North Slope. And they were wanted to enforce that treaty. And mm-hmm. so they the next day, they arrested these two hunters. And the next day, every single hunter in town showed up with a duck. <laughs> and said you can us, and then tomorrow any of our wives who are not hunters because women also hunted um, will show up in the day after that you've got a whole bunch of children what are you going to do with them and so there was no jail in town right so <laughs> these two, mm-hmm. the two officers who'd flown in were just you know they, they hid in their hotel rooms and then what happened after that was like the elders at that time they were you know they had western education to eighth grade but they were well connected and they were very 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 smart and so right. they took story of hunting to feed their family to America <laughs> and mm-hmm. they went across the country and told this i mean they didn't travel they sent the story out it hit the, they sent newspaper they sent press releases to newspaper it was in the news it was in the radio it was all over all over the country mm-hmm. that these hunters had been arrested for trying to feed their children and how unjust was this law and it was almost overnight that it was, you know, they just they just put a complete end to it and I don't think Fish and Game came back up to Kervik until I was born, you know, I mean until I would like the 80s or 90s maybe they tried to start and they came very with a very different attitude of cooperation and so that was the first film that I made and going back to your question about what does this do for a, a community we didn't know how that film was going to be taken because again it was very low production Value Because we didn't have any money and, and we right. decided we were making it for education for schools. And so we decided not to edit it down to like, you know, at that time MTV was still very popular and we were, like, we're not going to do a, a cheap, you know, racy version of this. We're just going to let people tell a story and we're just going to tell a story. And so we just put that out and it was picked up by every kid in school and the the kids in school who were not attending school, who were slipping through the cracks and dropping out of school, were bringing this Mm -hmm. film for their film nights, you know, choosing it over whatever racy Hollywood films were at the time. And they wanted to watch that film and on all the extras and so we marked that we were thrilled that was the goal right but then what happened is it all the adults started picking it up in the community because this story had not been recorded anywhere nobody it was almost out of memory the last handful of people who had been part of it were elders um were was still alive so i was able to interview them but they weren't telling the story i remember sitting the article i wrote for shadow i was you know i walked in to interview one of the elders and their grandchildren said what are you doing why are you interviewing my grandfather And I said, your grandfather was one of the key leaders of this. And they went, what are you talking about? I've never heard this story before. Wow. As there was this, this barrier, this imposed barrier in our generations, right? And so then the adults and the elders started picking up. And then the state started picking it up and using it as training for their fish and wildlife officers. Wow. And then the colleges and universities did, and then the politicians did. And so it was really interesting to watch it sort of, you know, and this is before again, this is at the time where if you called yourself a social justice filmmaker, you are not allowed to be called a filmmaker. <laughs> um, which is what people said to me. And now of course it's the most popular thing in filmmaking. Oh yeah,
0: everyone's trying to get a piece of it and white people everybody. are definitely trying to find their way to wiggle it. <laughs> yeah, everybody, everybody. It's like, oh
2: my god, but you can't use you still can't use the word social justice. You have to call it impact filmmaking. <laughs> but oh, it's do, you,
0: the same do you thing. mind me asking why that is like what i don't know too much about the ins and outs of filmmaking in that way so do you social know justice
2: why is a scary social justice is a scary term impact filmmaking social impact filmmaking is a way of raising money to use mm-hmm. your film to make positive social change and you're raising money from people who are not necessarily comfortable with the term social justice but they're happy to help you use your film for to make positive social impact Great. right Like watering
0: it down a little bit, less radical so that we don't
2: get freaked out. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the pragmatic side of me, even though I get grumpy about that particular point, (laughs) for so many years I was beaten up over it. The pragmatic side of me goes, "Hey, you know what? We've got a we've got a million dollars to put an impact campaign behind this film. We can do what we want to do with it now. Let's not complain." Right. You know, it's just,
0: yeah, I always I think, think about that too with my work, like the kind of things I apply for grants. And you know, I'm always like, "What? What? How can you scam? <laughs> how can you get around this and really get to do the work they want to do?" And I guess like I, I think I have seen an increase of more funds that are like less restrictive and a little bit more open-ended what you can use them for. But I'm sure, yeah, again, like you've been in the filmmaking industry a lot longer. Like it's probably been just a creative way of navigating those kind of uh, criteria so that you can get funding.
2: Yeah, it is. And it's also, you know, in recognition of what it is like, the reason these things trigger people, social justice or resistance, Mm -hmm. the reason they trigger people is because these issues are still unresolved in our society, right? In our, Mm -hmm. in in our, in our Nupaks, in our native societies in our first nation societies, in our other diverse societies and in our greater society, these are still very real issues. And so they trigger us and we get scared and we get scared for a reason because there's a violent history behind them. And so we have to be understanding of that so that we, we don't go through, we don't get through this unless we come through it together, right? We need to build bridges and be able to come to this together. So we need to understand the context we're in and understand even why people will get scared of that without silencing those of us who need to say, hey, I come from a, a, a history of resistance. You know, mm-hmm. we do both. It doesn't have to be an either or again. But yeah, that that's right. So that's what that, that first film I was, I, what I remember Um, Watching it and kind of being behind the release of it and the working of it and the impact running what's now called an impact campaign without having any money for an impact campaign Um, Mm -hmm. and being amazed at how far we could take it. This simple film that had no production value that where I I felt when I was making, I, I, was, I made it with two other filmmakers who were with me in the beginning and then they both went off to get their master's degrees. Um, one is Kathy Tuganuck-Rexford and the other one is Andrew O'Bell McLean. They were there in the beginning and, and we had huge conversations around who we were targeting, right, and whether or not what that meant with how we're doing it and we sort of made a decision where we we were okay with the sacrifice that this film might not go anywhere else it might just be local it wasn't, then it did. It went to all these other places. Um, so, so it was amazing to watch what storytelling in filmmaking mm-hmm. with an in perspective, with indigenous perspectives can do when you, when you ground it in indigenous principles, um, and how far it can go and what change it can make in the world. And you can't, the hard thing about it is it's very hard to quantify. This is one of the issues with impact filmmaking. Mm-hmm. You can't say this film pushed this law over, but you can mm-hmm see how it helps it see film story filmmaking and storytelling can seed movements and strengthen movements in Mm -hmm. a way very hard to do with any other form right pamphlets don't do the same white papers don't do the same there's something about storytelling that can galvanize uh, of the masses desire to see change and galvanize your heartstrings so that you you feel it, and then it's it's a much more powerful connection to a movement if you feel a connection to the stories within that movement, and that's what filmmaking can do for that kind of resistance.
0: No, that's so beautiful that you put it that way because I think again, what you know, in the last recent years, what we have seen even more groups like really take a stand like physically, right? Like be in protest physically, be at like the, you know, forefront of just pushing different legislation and trying to make all these changes. I think it can feel overwhelming of like, what is my role in all of this? If I don't have, If that's not what I want to be doing, if I don't want to be in the front lines in that way. But I think storytelling, uh, whether it's through filmmaking, photography, writing, right, it has, I think, the power to still be part of a movement, of a social movement, of change, but it just has a different role. And I'm sure you've seen this within your community that, you know, we all have different roles. And some of us, that is our role as storytellers. And I feel like I've recently come into accepting that that as also my role and, and claiming that because, again, my community, because of colonization, the church and all these different things has had a hard time, like really keeping our indigenous ways or naming them even. And so part of me feels like I have to keep writing down, asking these questions to the elders that I do still have alive and then retelling those stories to my sister. And then when I, you know, if I'm able to have children like to them and so forth, because if that's, I feel like that's such an important role, you know, before all that is lost. And so I'm sure you see that in your work as well, that storytelling, it does play such a big role in, The bigger picture of what we're trying to achieve, which you know could be self determination, liberation, sovereignty, like it it fits into that. It's just one part of the many roles that we have to take.
2: Yeah, that's a great point you bring up. I I completely identify with that because I, I mean, I come from a family of people who worked in many different spaces. You know, my my parents Mm -hmm. are filmmakers, but they're also act. My father's also an activist. He's also a geologist. He's also created companies and, and filed. You know, my uncle filed land claims. Like, you know, I, I come from this as well, and I often am tempted. I feel like I should be working in these other more direct. Yeah. Spaces I feel like you know, so it's like the front lines work. I say, well, I feel yeah. I don't feel like I'm at the front lines. I feel like I should be at the front lines, and it's and I I I'm not naturally a politician or naturally in those oh, spaces. No. I'm a Nubach politician, not like a you know ugly politician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not naturally that either, but I'm not. I I don't naturally sit in those spaces easily. But I I always feel like I probably should go or go and get a master's in education and go back into the education system and right. finish that, finish reforming there. Or you know, I always I am always drawn to these other areas. But where I am most comfortable and most where my most my passion where my heart and my spirit are always drawn is storytelling and mm-hmm. as i've gotten older i've realized that i could absolutely go into those areas and put all of my energy into doing important work but there are only a handful of us storytellers right there's not, there's yeah. not a lot of us storytellers right now and the stories are the things that help ground all of that other movement, right? Like you can, it, it, exactly what you said, it's different roles, right? And, and for me, I equate it to, it's a, it's just a very simple analogy, but it's all pieces of the puzzle, right? You can't, you can't see the whole picture if you just have the corners, right? But if you don't have, you can't put any of the edges together and you don't know where your frame is at, right? So mm-hmm. you need all of the pieces of the puzzle in order to make the whole movement work. Right, and we and recognizing and validating everybody's different way of doing that, so long as we are all contributing towards the same goal, is is another way of decolonizing ourselves internally. Because mm-hmm. I think the idea that I should be doing this or should be doing that is born out of two things: one, out of the urgency of of trauma in our community. Right, there's a sense of urgency. You can you feel the loss of people, you feel the death in, in my immediate family and my extended family and my community, people I love, you know, I've, I've counted this last month, I've counted, I've buried three classmates, you know, you, you feel that all, non, not one of them natural death. You feel the urgency of that. And so you drawn to doing that. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is the internalized narrative of what it means to be, uh, what what strength is and what fighting is, right? And the distraction of that rather than the grounding nature of sitting in a space and being who you are and, and, and holding that space for others, right? With each other, right? Sitting in that space and asserting your identity by being it rather than by shouting it. And I think that those multiple roles, when we put it together, we get there really fast, As communities, right? We we topple things almost instantly when we operate in unity, understanding that people have different roles and different, you know, callings to use Mm it. Probably not a great term. But I, I feel that as I've gotten older, I've started looking at storytelling and I've started looking back over my filmmaking experience and gone, you know, these stories and this history that I was lucky enough to be given in my childhood and throughout all of my years of And even now where I sit with elders and I I have access to these these stories of who we are and how we are and and Mm -hmm. our history. Well, not a lot of people they're not they're not sort of populated everywhere, right? Right. These are so important for our young politicians to learn, to hear. They're so important for our educators, they're so important for our healers, they're so important for our parents to hear Mm -hmm. these young parents, to hear the stories and understand the stories of who we are as a people. And I've realized that maybe that is actually where I am most Effective, so I could step out and do, in, and I have for periods of time. Like I've worked in education, I've worked in other spaces, and I've worked in systemic reform um, with large organizations. And I still do that work, but I think where I am most effective is in holding these stories and maintaining them, and and telling them and putting them back, injecting them back into the consciousness of our collective community, mm-hmm. so that they become they become they become tools and, and healing tools and powerful tools and lightning rods for all of the other work that needs to happen.
0: Wow, I yes, I love all of that. It's amazing. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, I hope that other young storytellers or people that are thinking about this when they're listening to this will also be inspired with that that we need more storytellers, which leads me right into my final question of, you know, this phrase of indigenous futurism like what do you think when you hear that what do you think is the future of indigenous filmmaking
2: it's an interesting question it's got a lot of different sort of uh, it's a little bit like an octopus indigenous futurism <laughs> which is which is sort of fun but i'd like to go in of course all of the eight different ways um i'll start with the first one because that's that brings me right back around to when where i started filmmaking which was you know the very first film i wrote and the thing i got the sundance fellowship for was a, a little short off of that i wrote a trilogy of Inubak fantasy. And it was, it, it was, it, fantasy is a funny term in the in, in, Inubak context or in the First Nations context, because I think for us, at least as Inubak people, our world is filled with. Uh, something that doesn't it's and there's no term for mm-hmm. it really in English because it doesn't exist in western society in the same way the closest thing is is you know fantasy or magical realism but yes. it's more it's more perspective in a way of understanding the world it's more of a new perspective way of understanding the world and i wanted to tell those stories and put them back on and put them on our screens and read because that mm-hmm. my father just he he used to you know his stories he used to tell us he would tell us oral stories he would tell us made up stories he would tell us stories he found but they were all told completely as if every single one of them was absolutely <laughs> the truth and they weren't necessarily just traditional traditional stories right he would tell us stories about aliens that were put into a traditional context so this is where you know yeah. all the Inubar people came from and Ubach people and giants and little people all came from alien, an alien spaceship right and he would just tell it to you as if that was the way that the world was (laughs) constructed at this exact moment, or polar bears with belts on them, right? Like with gold belts that they carried around. And then he would tell you old stories about little people that were completely traditional stories. And (laughs) I think, you know, when I first started making filmmaking, those were the things I wanted to tell stories. that, That landscape, I wanted to place Inupiaq stories into Inupiaq landscapes. And that equated to, you know, the closest thing, could understand was uh, a fantasy and and magical realism, which is sort of where that indigenous futurism stuff in film is going or is sort of aiming at. And I I find it I, I love it. I love the idea of reseeding and and reclaiming and giving ourselves permission to have uh, to have imagination and joy in our futures that where we can still acknowledge the trauma we carry and we can still work on it. We can still tell the power, the stories of that trauma. I think that's a place for that, but I think that we can't put all of our stories into that setting, right? We have to make sure that that is just part of our story, not our entire story. Our entire story can't be one of trauma and devastation or we won't survive. Right. Mm -hmm. Story has to have the complexity and the nuance that we carry in our spirit as Inupiaq people and as First Nations people around the world, diverse communities around the world, because it's within that we have the strength to survive that trauma and heal from it. And so the indigenous futurism stuff, you know, that's that's what comes to mind when I think about that. And I think. How exciting that we've finally that we've got here, that we're at this point in our history as storytellers and as filmmakers and as, as native people, as First Nations people in the world. How exciting that we've got to a point where we can we can give space to our imagination again, right? Mm-hmm. And we use the, use the power of that imagination to construct, reconstruct our reality in a way that makes sense for who we are in our spirit rather than who we've been told we need to be.
0: Wow. Yes, absolutely. And again, I think there is an emerging of that, right? And so I'm really excited. I think now, also I used to love reading um fiction as a young adult. And I feel like now I'm revisiting young adult fiction because there is so many more Indigenous authors now that are writing from that right. perspective of, of Indigenous futurism and then also revisiting um, like Black futurism that I didn't really know about uh, when I was growing up. And so, yeah, again, it's just so, so powerful. So thank you so much. All of that. I'm just like still processing what you just said. I'm like, wow, yes, inspired for the day. Um, Yeah. Any closing thoughts you want to add? And then, you know, where can people find your work or support your work?
2: Uh, oh, thank you again for having me on. It's really an honor to be here. And it's, it's, it's also just lovely to connect with other people who are also doing this work. And I, I think that's the one thing I always like to recognize is that. You know, there there are so many of us doing this work all around the world. And there's so many, even in my own community, you know, we have lots of people doing this work. And and one of the most powerful things for me is when I remember to stop for looking out and holding up my hands in defense, and remember that next to me it's a whole community of people, right? Internationally and a diverse at diverse communities, not just my own community and not just other BIPOC community, but other communities who have experienced this form of these forms of oppression and other people who are out like i find i find a lot of strength and a lot of power in that and, and i i like mm-hmm. to remember to recognize to recognize everybody who's standing there with us and and in that you know place ourselves into that community and into that legacy of work and the people who have come before us um, and just thanks for opening the space and thanks for having this conversation it's lovely to meet you and it's lovely to hear a bit about your work as well and And um, I hope that, um, hopefully that this is a magnet for finding more of us, you know, we can find more around the world. And I love to hear from anybody else and connect with anybody else. And yeah, and to the young, to people who are just starting out on their journey in particular, to people who are just starting out with this, that's part of the reason I like to recognize that. Just remember, you're not alone, right? I Mm -hmm. think sometimes in our communities, when you're trying to do this work or you're trying to find these spaces and you don't have. The support around you—it can be very lonely. And my—I hope that you remember that you're not alone. And I hope that people—I hope that you find other creatives and other people working in these spaces. If you're not in creative field, other people working in the spaces that you're working in, and connect with them and and revitalize, you know, recharge in that way with each other.
0: Thank you so much again. And then, is there like a specific website or um, place that people can maybe try to find your films or other? parts of your work. Yeah. So they're kind of
2: all over. We've taken the website down. We're about to relaunch it. So it will mm-hmm. shortly, it will soon be up. Um, hopefully soon at, at the moment it's coming underneath our company website that does systemic reform. And that's mm-hmm. Um So I can send you some links afterwards, yeah. but um, yeah, there, there's places, but you can find the latest film in Australia was in my blood. It runs. And then the history series, the films are all on isuma.com and Vimeo. So it's the mm-hmm. history of the Inupiaq, documentary series and you'll find three films there and the other ones soon hopefully to be loaded up
0: right and i think you can now i was looking to like the other one that you did um in australia the uh, in my Blood It runs i think that one is also available now to like rent right or to like be yeah. able to pay to watch it
2: Yes, that's available to rent as well. So that's sort of run its gamut of, you know, we, we've done three years campaigning uh, off the mm-hmm. back of that film, and we're now kind of handing it over to our partners. But yes, that mm-hmm. one's on the film. And then I was also involved in supporting another film called The Dream Life of Georgie Stone, which is on Netflix right now, which is a lovely short film that people can and find if you look on Netflix. Um, and it has a website, so you can also have watch parties and things like that. So yeah, that's films. And then there's some other films um, in Australia previous to that working with other communities voices from the cape and burn and uh one that's not online yet so they'll be online once we get the website up
0: great thank you again rachel so much for your time and yeah make sure to also check out her articles that she's written for shadow magazine and then thank you
1: massive thank you to samara and rachel for that beautiful dialogue about the power of storytelling not only the power of how it can teach you or show you who you are but also how it can help you to understand kind of a collective spiritual identity for your community I thought that was so incredible and so grateful to have heard those words. Yeah I just think it was really exciting and interesting to hear about the like the power of Indigenous futurism and that I think really builds off what Andrew was talking about in the solar punk episode about that kind of the balance of acknowledging the trauma and history while also making sure that space is being made for radical reimagination and like I can't wait to do some reading around indigenous futurism because it's not something I've done before but I think it sounds incredibly important Um, and as you say like the the importance of storytellers to have all these tools to be able to forge a different future it's yeah thanks to both